0: Welcome to Catholic Light. Join me, Becca Doherty, each week as we shed a little light while keeping the conversation light. Hi, and welcome back to Catholic Light. Thanks for joining me for another episode. You might tell from the sound of my voice that the reason for uh, no episode last week is that um, almost the whole family came down with some sort of cold, illness, etc. This last week, and I actually lost my voice for a couple of days, so um, not really conducive to podcasting. And then I, I, turned to Dan at one point. I said, "Hey, could you just read the Catechism selection, so we don't skip a week?" And then poor guy, he got sick too. So thanks for your patience, and um, hopefully you enjoyed a week off from Catholic Light. Maybe you got to you know listen to something else or. Um, if you're like me, I, I like to run through episodes of podcasts and kind of like tick it off my list. So if you're if you're one of those podcast listeners that likes to, you know, okay, listen to this episode, this week's episode of this podcast and this week's episode of this podcast, well, then maybe it, it gave you a little break and it was, it was good for everyone all around. So uh, anyway, thanks for persevering. Thanks for coming back for another episode of Catholic Light. And here we go. On today's episode, we will read, the second half of today's episode, we'll read paragraphs 2401 through 2463. This covers the Seventh Commandment. And um, with the Fifth and sixth Commandments, which were pretty lengthy and covered some, some really heavy-hitting topics... Um, so I ran into Amy Leahy. Shout out to Amy Leahy, Catholic Light podcast listener and friend. And somewhere in the midst of of Commandments 5 and 6, we happened to be at a, a friend's child's birthday together. She kind of sidles up to me. She's like, so got some big topics going on the last couple of weeks. So um, those were big topics with uh, you know a good chunk of paragraphs devoted to them in the catechism. And now Commandments 7, um, is also a little more lengthy, um, but not lengthy enough to break it into two episodes. So we're just going to power through and do the the full reading with the Seventh Commandment on the second half of today's episode. So we'll chat a little bit about the Seventh Commandment, Thou shalt not steal. And then I just want to um, say a couple more things about Commandment 6, really based on in last week's episode, the last couple episodes, um, I said on on the podcast, you know, if you have further questions, if you perhaps are considering not using contraception, but you don't quite know how to transition to natural family planning, feel free to reach out, you know, via email and messaging. And a number of you did. So first, thank you for um, entrusting your your questions to me and um, for allowing me to be a part of your search and know that I'm praying for you and praying for each of your particular situations for all Catholic Light Podcast listeners. Um I continue to lift you up in prayer each day and uh, pray for you as you, as each of us strives to live the life God has beautifully offered to each of us. Um, And, you know, really, God bless you uh, for, it's hard to make any change in life, um, but especially when it comes to fertility, to marriage and family life, like that's really... um, Again, like I said on the last episode, not like, should I pray Lexio Divina or should I pray the rosary? Like this, this is, it's really upfront and center in, in our lives and affects the day to day and, you know, long term, uh, the way we live our lives. And so God bless you for having the courage to consider change, to, to research, you know, doing something differently in your life, which, um, God is blessing And will continue to bless. So it's very inspiring to me to see that in you. So God bless you. And a funny anecdote uh, since last week's episode was this. I ran into basically through like a funny ordering of events. I made a new friend, a new mom friend in the neighborhood. And I was trying to connect her to... Amy Leahy, whom I just mentioned, who runs the Elizabeth Ministry out of our parish, which is this wonderful group for for moms and their kids. And um, Amy just does such a fabulous job of of offering opportunities for moms to connect when otherwise they might feel like a little isolated. And she arranges it in such a way that it's really – she makes it easy for for moms with kids. Um, So you show up if you can, you don't if you can't, and, um, you know, you can connect with – with other women and sometimes men with other parents and um, the kids can play together and it's just really awesome. So I ran into this mom who has young kids and um, she was looking for something, a way of growing in her faith, but really couldn't commit to too much. And I said, oh, I'll connect you with Amy Leahy. She has this great group. This woman at the moment was kind of in a rush. I said, okay, next time we see each other, I'll get your information and I'll connect you with Amy. So in the meantime, she found me on Facebook, sent me a Facebook friend request. You know, I connected her with Amy, with the St. Elizabeth Ministry Group. And then I look at the post that must have come up for her. It just happened to be, um, you know, last week's episode, contraception is a sneaky little liar. And I thought, God bless this woman <laughs> and her introduction to me. She's probably walking away like, you Catholic weirdo. I am not joining you or your friends or any sort of group if that's, if that's what you're putting out there on Facebook and Instagram. Um, so it made me then think, uh, again, of, of each of us anybody who who does something countercultural, which so many dimensions of our Catholic faith are, are countercultural. And um, I just wanted to say, again, as a, as a way of encouragement that, you know, as Christ says in the Gospels, like, the world will, will give you grief, but fear not, I have overcome the world. Like 80, 90, God willing, years on earth is but a drop in the bucket of, of our eternal life. And, um, you know, it's... It's often uncomfortable or, like, a little awkward to live out our faith and be able to talk about our faith, um, but the the blessings that come with it, not just, you know, on the other side of heaven, God willing, but even now are just far outweigh the costs. And so I say this as a way of encouragement that you're doing great. Persevere even through, like, the funny interactions where people might look at your Facebook or your Instagram and think, like, oh, okay, you're, like, one of those Catholics. Um, in the end, we're all wired for truth and, um, we're made for truth and that's what will lead to our greatest happiness and fulfillment. So persevere, you're doing great, continue to invite other people in, even if it's like a funny neighborhood mom situation where she's like, what? Uh, She too is made for this truth, this beauty, this goodness. And so, you know, keep inviting, keep allowing the, the light, the truth, the radiance, the beauty of Christ to shine in and through your life. And um, just know that you're in good company if you end up in awkward situations. <laughs> um, kind of flowing from that, too, I think of this the time where uh, so Dan and I have delivered our four children at the same hospital, three with one practice, and then in between Peter and Lucy, the practice up and left and went to another hospital. And so we delivered Lucy with a different practice. After delivering Sophia, I must have said in my my postpartum visit, you know, they go through like, how are you feeling? They check you out, blah, blah, blah. And then at some point they ask, even though it's a Catholic hospital, they ask like, okay, what kind of contraception are you going to use moving forward? And so I must have said, you know, to the doctor, uh, like, oh, my husband and I, we don't use contraception. We use natural family planning, specifically NAPRA technology, (laughs) at at which point the doctor is already like tuning me out and rolling her eyes like, okay, you wackadoo. Um, So she must have written it in my chart, because then the doctors did not ask me about contraception when it came to any other child. <clears throat> so, it was after I gave birth to Peter. So, 6 weeks after giving birth to him, I'm at my postpartum visit. I'm in my little, you know, exam room in the hospital gown, ga- my hospital gown, and I hear this doctor, let's call her Dr. H. I hear Dr. H approaching on the other door at the other side of the door, and she was training a med student, or a med student was was shadowing her. So I hear them, I'm sitting on, you know, sitting on the table in the room, doors closed. I hear them like three feet away from me, just on the other side of the door, going through my chart. And so Dr. H says to the med student, like you can hear her going through Rebecca Doherty, you know, delivered, whatever, March 2nd, 2020. Um, You hear her going through line by line like, ooh, Peter James. Love that name. Great name. Okay. looks like she delivered this way at this time you know, third pregnancy. Oh, don't like that. You could tell she got to the line in my chart where it said, like, Rebecca and her husband do not use contraception. (laughs) So then, like, she keeps going through. "Mm -hmm, mm -hmm." And then, like, 10 seconds later, pops through the door. Hey, congratulations on your newborn. I'm like, I see you, babe. I heard everything you just said about me, and that's okay. Uh, So, you know, we... We often not only not praised but ridiculed for living our Catholic faith. But again, I just I say this as a source of encouragement. You're doing great. It's worth it. Persevere and God bless you. Um, I wanted to say again, or I also wanted to say before we hit the seventh commandment, just two two other uh, things having to do with our discussion of of contraception and specifically how it's a sneaky little liar. And uh, that's this one. Um, One of the lies of contraception is that you can go on contraception and then whenever you want to get pregnant, just go off it and you'll be able to get pregnant. And then when you don't want to get pregnant, you know, just go back on the contraception. And sadly, we may have experienced ourselves or we see among our family and friends that um, so many women who are on contraception. Um, have then ha- will go off it and then have a difficult time getting pregnant, and sometimes to the point of not being able to get pregnant. And then they will seek out things like uh, in vitro fertilization and other fertility procedures. And so, um, <clears throat> I, I entitled last week's episode, or sorry, two weeks ago's episode, "Contraception is a Sneaky Little Liar," because it's that 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 sneakiness that those lies really sneak their way into so many dimensions of. our lives our marriages our families our relationships um and sadly are not just contraceptive or prevent conception um but they the contraceptives will, will affect um other dimensions of our lives so for example not being able to have children at all um but also and this leads to my second point um will also operate, they do operate as abortifacients as well. So uh, another really sad lie of contraception is that many of the modes of contraception work as abortifacients. And so, uh, for example, the, the birth control pill works in three ways, primarily. Um, two ways are contraceptive, and then the third is an abortifacient. So the pill, which has actually become increasingly less used because so many men and women have realized how horrible it is for women um, from a health perspective. And so that's one of the reasons why uh, vasectomies have become more and more common, where it's it's born out of, I think, a, a loving self-sacrificial intention where men don't want they're women. They're women. That sounds awful. <laughs> where men don't want their wives, girlfriends, significant others to suffer the effects that come along with the birth control pill. And so they'll get vasectomies, um, which is like a whole nother ball of wax. But um, it, it, so it's good that that so many men and women have realized how awful the, the pill is, but then that's brought us down a new road. Um, but so anyway, the, the birth control pill works in three ways. One, it will... Uh, thicken the woman's cervical mucus so that sperm cannot get through and get get in contact with the egg and fertilize it. It will suppress a woman's ovulation um, so that she doesn't release an egg to then get fertilized. Uh, So those are the two contraceptive ways it works. The third way, which is abortifacient, is this. The um, pill will thin the lining of the woman's uterus so that if she does conceive, so if sperm and egg meet, Um, the woman's uterine lining is thinned so that that little embryo doesn't have a place to attach to. And so the woman, um, it's so sad. So many women are aborting their children, essentially, aborting these little embryos, not even knowing um, that that's what's happening. So it's explained in, you know, scientific language in the, like that long fold out um, from contraceptives. So the... Each company, you know, tells you that that's what's actually happening. But um, like so many things, so many of us don't read, you know, what's going on. And so many women don't know that they're aborting their children. So um, it was a bold title two weeks ago because it's, sadly, it's a bold thing so many people are unknowingly doing. Often they're invincibly ignorant because this is just literally sold to us as a bill of goods, as, like, the normal, natural thing. Um, so, again, you know, six-week postpartum visit, just very casually, like, um, and what kind of contraception will you be using? And when, when you say that you don't, it's like, okay, you weirdo. Um, so, again, this was the, the reason for the, the bold title a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, again, I encourage you, if you're using it, um, simply from from a health perspective, I encourage you not to use contraception. And um, – then, you know, for the, the spiritual benefits that, are, that come along with, with using natural family planning and foregoing contraception are, are literally eternal blessings. Um, and so I, I invite you to check that out. And again, if you have further questions or you're, you're thinking about this, one, know that I'm praying for you. And two, feel free to reach out. If I can't answer your question, um, I will direct you to someone who can. One more thing I want to say uh, along the lines of contraception. And that's this. Uh, someone reached out to me with a question. I answered her question as best I could. I said, "Let me check with my friend and former colleague, Father McCabe, whom I referenced on the last episode. Uh, just to just to make sure I'm giving you the fullness of this answer and uh, see if he has anything else to. To contribute to hopefully shine light on your situation, so we have Father McCabe over for dinner. Um, I walk him through this question, and uh, he said this, which was we we actually talked about this on the last episode. But he said it in a way that I was like, oh, that is just so good. I'm gonna reflect on that uh, for my own marriage and family, and uh, you know share that with the Catholic Light podcast listeners. He said this when he was talking about the the benefits of natural family planning. Um, he he ran through the four we. I quoted him as saying in the last episode. So natural family planning increases a couple's knowledge of their physiology and their fertility. It increases communication. You literally have to talk each day, each month about, you know, hopes, dreams, fears, and how are we going to proceed? It um, helps a couple grow in power sharing. So deferring to one another, not like overriding the other's decision. And then it helps a couple grow in virtue. Um, so he said, he ran through those four again and he said, um, he said fertility for a couple is a unique time because you have the opportunity to grow in those four things in like a very, um, inescapable way, uh, such that if you're not communicating, if you don't have knowledge, you know, and you're just like, yeah, we'll see. Then, you know, little baby might show up nine months later and, all the, the beautiful and, and difficult things that come along with that. So he said fertility is a unique time to grow in these four things And then when a couple's fertility is done, so after the woman goes through menopause and, and no longer releases eggs that can be fertilized, um, the couple do, the couple still has the opportunity to grow in communication, knowledge, etc, but in no longer in that unique way that fertility affords. So he said when you when you grow in those things, um those things later in life, later in a marriage, will carry you through uh, other difficult decisions, et cetera, in marriage. So in other words, we, he, he said, with this particular situation, he he asked, okay, how how much how many years of fertility does does this person uh, have left? He said anywhere from like five to ten. He said, okay, um, this person has five to ten years left of having the opportunity to grow in knowledge, communication, power sharing, and virtue in a very unique way. And then when the couple's fertility is done, that growth will carry that couple through the later years of marriage. In other words, when when we're not like charting ovulation and fertility, et cetera, um, there, there's just fewer opportunities to sit down and say like, okay, do we have a grave reason to not to avoid getting pregnant this month? Um, can we welcome another child into our marriage and family? Why or why not? Um, those conversations just don't happen anymore after a couple is not fertile. And so, uh, taking up that time of fertility and really embracing it as a unique time to grow in these different areas will then bless the couple later in marriage when they don't have those opportunities for those, you know, really like particular big questions. Um, And so that really shifted my perspective. Sometimes it's like, okay, this is a lot (laughs) and a lot to consider each day, each month. Um, And so it almost seems like a relief sometimes when that's taken, that will be taken out of the equation. Um, But Father McCabe flipped it on its head and said like, no, now's the time to grow. And this growth will help you later in your marriage when you don't have these opportunities to grow. So, um, you know, come Lord Jesus, give us the grace to use this time well and allow you to work in us and through us, in and through our our marriages, our families, our relationships, um, such that we have that kind of strength and grace and courage for things that come up later in life, later in marriage, later in relationships. Amen. All right, now we move on to the Seventh Commandment. So Seventh Commandment, you shall not steal. Um, Paragraph 2401 kicks us off and says this. The Seventh Commandment forbids unjustly taking or keeping the goods of one's neighbor and wronging him in any way with respect to his goods. It commands justice and charity in the care of earthly goods and the fruits of men's labor. For the sake of the common good, it requires respect for the universal destination of good and respect for the right to private property. Christian life strives to order this world's goods to God and to fraternal charity. So thou shalt not steal. We think of, okay, we're not supposed to take things, steal things that don't belong to us. Um, we're also, you know, not supposed to do and we're happy when we don't do these things. Um, stealing company time by being lazy or checking social media, you know, during work hours, Um whatever, foregoing responsibilities that have been entrusted, uh, entrusted to us and stealing, quote unquote, stealing time and resources through our neglect. Um, but what I want to focus on is that that line, it requires, so the seventh commandment, requires respect for the universal destination of goods. So all of creation is destined for all men and women. So all of creation is due to, has been created for, has been entrusted to uh, all people no matter our state in life. It also requires respect for the right to private property. So we are also um, entrusted with the gift of, the capacity of being able to pri- privately own goods. So this is one of those Catholic both and. Am I supposed to give everything to everyone and keep nothing for myself? No. Am I supposed to keep everything for myself, look out for mine, and not share it with others? No. <laughs> it's it's for everyone. And also, I have the right to reserve it for myself. And the Catechism will go on to say specifically for my family, those entrusted, directly to my care. And so I think um, that's a great point of reflection in that we, you know, we work hard to earn money buy things, provide for our, our fa- ourselves, our family, our friends, and that is all good. Simultaneously and also, um, we are entrusted with the care of others and the goods that we receive, we earn, um, are, are made for, for all. And so we should be looking for opportunities to, to share that with others, with all, those outside of our direct little realm. 24 of 4 goes on to say, and I think clarifies further, In his use of things, man should regard the external goods he legitimately owns not merely as exclusive to himself, but common to others also, in the sense that they can benefit others as well as himself. The ownership of any property makes its holder a steward of providence with the task of making it fruitful and communicating its benefits to others, first of all, his family." So the things for which we work, the things we earn, um, are for for us, for our family, and also for the world at large. And so we can prayerfully consider, or we can pray, Lord, show me beyond my, my immediate little circle, um, how can I share, share these goods with um, the world at large? So th- these goods are are destined for the universe, the universal destination of goods, show me how I can use them for, use them well for my family, my friends, and others, especially those in need. And here's where I think uh, tithing comes again, comes in again, just as a great practical approach um, to money, to ownership, and to stewardship. So 2404 just talked about um, the stewardship or the, we're called to be stewards of providence, so that which the Lord provides, or providence. And this harkens back to uh, Genesis chapter 1, where God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion, dot, 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 over the birds of the air, you know, the beasts of the field, etc. And then uh, God goes on to say a couple of verses later, fill the earth, he tells Adam and Eve, fill the earth, I will fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over all of creation. And, um, you know, people will take issue with that word dominion because it sounds like we're dominating or just like stepping on the world to use it, you know, for our nefarious ends. Um, Dominion, the etymology of dominion, uh, comes from so dominion comes from dominus, which simply means lord or master, and the the sense is that um, a lord, a master of the household, kind of oversaw everything to make sure that it was all running well, um, that everybody had what they needed, so that the um, you know that the household could keep on going, and so we are called to have dominion in the sense that we are called to be um, uh, s- stewards to to use things well, such that the the household, the world runs well. Everyone gets what they need um, to live the lives that that God has to which God has invited us, and so we are called to steward the gifts of creation, resources, etc., while uh, recognizing again the universal destination of goods that all um, all of creation has been destined has been entrusted to and for all. And also, it's good to privately owned property and things such that we can care for those directly under our, our little noses. And so tithing, I think, is a great practical application or a great practical approach to this teaching in that tithing, again, is taking a tithe or 10% of our income and setting it aside for um, the things of God for others. So the first thing that comes to mind for many is placing it in the collection basket, which is great. Um, But you can also, you know, set that aside for making, let's say, 50 extra sandwiches a week for the local food shelter. You can set it aside for, you know, a friend or a neighbor, maybe someone you don't even know that well, who's struggling to make ends meet to pay their mortgage and say, hey, here's 100, 500, $1,000 to put towards your mortgage. That is all. That all falls under the realm of tithing in that we are taking 10% off the top of our earnings and we are entrusting it back to God um, who doesn't need our money. And so he entrusts it to those who need it in their particular circumstances. And I think tithing as we've probably discussed before, it does a couple of things. One, it reminds us when we take 10% off the top, we remember like, wow, this is all blessing. I'm, I'm working hard for this, or we as a family are working hard for this income. But um, it, it's by the grace of God that we're able to, year- to uh, earn it. So thank you, Jesus, for our health, our intellect, our capacity, and actual job. When so many people are having difficulty um, you know, finding jobs, uh, it, it It uh, places one in a position of gratitude. Thank you, God, for all that you have given me that enables me then to go forth and earn a living. Um, It also helps us remember that um, even if we live in a nice area, um, uh, there are people in need all around us. And while I might think I need that grande Pike's place with half and half to get through the day. I actually don't need a $3 and 13 cent coffee. <laughs> and that money could be put to better use for those in need. Again, not that far people, not that far from my my front door. Mother Teresa famously said, live simply so that others may simply live. And so when we set aside that 10%, we start to live within the 90% budget and realize, like, oh. I can totally do this. This is great. I actually still am able to get a Starbucks coffee. Um, but meanwhile, uh, I'm also able to, to help others who, who are in need. So if you're not tithing, uh, I invite you to consider tithing. And if that is a little terrifying, like, ah, 10% of my income, start with 1%, work your way up to two, three, and, um, Watch, watch the blessings unfold for you and your family and, and those around you. All right, let's move to paragraphs 2423 through 2425, where uh, the catechism outlines very briefly the church's social teaching principles um, as points of reflection. These are criteria for judgment, guidelines for action, when it comes to evaluating um, the way in which a society Engages in commerce, basically, work and pay. Uh, It gives us the principles, the guidelines for the criteria for evaluating, um, is this good for everyone and the universal destination of goods and the ownership of private property? Or is this um, not supporting all of of the men and women whom God has created and to whom he has entrusted the stewardship of, of goods? All right, so 2423 says, The church's social teaching proposes principles for reflection. It provides criteria for judgment. It gives guidelines for action. Any system in which social relationships are determined entirely by economic factors is contrary to the nature of the human person and his acts. There was a a stage of my my sister's motherhood where she kept telling the kids, people are more important than things. People are more important than things. And it was – one dimension of that was when you know the the kids would like spill something on the rug or smear something on the couch, and she and her husband were like, "Okay, you know what? People are more important than things. Like, that's okay. We make mistakes." Um, but I thought I I I've thought of it a number of times. Like, people are more important than things, and so as the catechism says here, if um, social relationships are determined entirely by economic factors, so if money, the exchange of goods, et cetera, is really, like, running the show, and people are placed below that, then something's wrong with that society. 2424 goes on to say, a theory that makes profit the exclusive norm and ultimate end of economic activity is morally unacceptable a system that subordinates the basic rights of individuals and groups to the collective organization of production is contrary to human dignity so this enslaves man idolizes money and spreads atheism so putting things money even the the collective production of goods over the individual is bad and leads to the enslavement of man idolizing of money and spread of atheism 2425 says the church has rejected the totalitarian and atheistic ideologies associated in modern times with communism or socialism. She likewise refuses to accept in the practice of capitalism individualism and the absolute primacy of the law of the marketplace over human labor. There are many human needs which cannot be satisfied by the market. Reasonable regulation of the marketplace and economic initiatives in keeping with the just hierarchy of values and a view to the common good is to be commended. So communism and socialism place the individual under... The common good of production, so it, so it's good to promote, great to promote the common good, but um, these two ideologies promote it in such a way that that production is more important than you've probably heard. The little cogs in the wheel, we're all little cogs in the wheel, moving that big wheel of of production. So that on the one hand, and then a practice of capitalism that puts the individual under the absolute primacy of the marketplace um, is also to be avoided. Is also wrong when it comes to uh, supporting the human person, individual, and as a group, and um, allowing us to, to live our lives well, enjoy the goods of creation, and steward steward them to all. Twenty four, twenty seven, and twenty four, twenty eight. Then go on to to talk about the value of work and um, how it can be a means of of sanctification and salvation. So we'll end the first half of the episode um, on this note. So 2427 says, work can be a means of sanctification and a way of animating earthly realities with the spirit of Christ. 2428 goes on to say, work is for man, not man for work. So work is entrusted to us, given to us, a part of human life in that – it's it's not the work itself, but a a mode of sanctifying and saving us. And so, when viewed this way, we realize that that it doesn't really matter the job, okay? Whether it's um, you know creating the the Tesla with Elon Musk, or whether it's um, you know picking up the trash every Monday and Thursday in the neighborhood. Um, each job, each form of work, affords individuals the opportunity to be sanctified, to made whole, to be made holy, and to be saved, ultimately to be God willing in heaven, with God for all of eternity. And so we, we often get it wrong, you know, work we're, we, we often think of of men and women as being made for work and not work as being made for men and women. So this is reminiscent of the the, the line from the gospel, you know, the Sabbath was made for man, man not for the Sabbath, in that God has has set up all these things in human life, As means of coming to him, of of being perfected and purified, being made into the men and women he created us to be, and then ultimately being with him forever in heaven. And so I think of my my family of origin. I'm the oldest of four kids. uh, So I was a theology teacher for years. My brother is a priest. And then my sister is a CPA, certified public accountant, and then my brother is a scientist who works on vaccines. So, so you really have the gamut there. And you know, people will will often think of my brother, Father Gregory, and me as like, um, you know, the the Catholic ones, and then Christy and Matt as like those in the the world, the workforce. But the truth is that um, oftentimes Christy and Matt have more opportunities for living the gospel because i th- i think as i mentioned at the beginning of the episode it's very easy to write me off like oh, like the the catholic the the crazy catholic lady who who teaches theology whatever that is um but my my sisters in you know the the workforce with with people who practice lots of different religions who are across the political spectrum and she works she works ethically um, she works hard she uh, talks about um, you know some of the beautiful things that she and her husband are doing in their marriage and family life, which I'm sure just radiates the gospel, radiates light into the lives of her coworkers who might not otherwise have experienced that. I think of my brother Matt, who, God bless him, he, you know he's a scientist working on vaccines, and there's lots of opportunity for for ethical compromise, where um, you know just to like move along to get along he could just you know turn a blind eye and keep going but he doesn't and so god bless him he he was basically working in a lab where he came across an ethical dilemma he very respectfully and you know quietly went to his the director of his lab and said i'm so sorry but i can't work on this particular project and the the director gave him a hard time for it so matt opted for another lab um, was able to work on really cool and interesting things. And lo and behold, years later, the director – sorry, that's not the right term. The head of his lab, let's say – there's a term for it, and I just asked him because I asked, I asked him permission to share this on the podcast. Um, let's say the head of his lab, Drew Weissman, was just awarded the, the Nobel Prize. And so um, how awesome that, that Matt first followed his conscience – worked in an ethically good way and then we we often think of um, like oh like if I live my Catholic faith in my job like I'm going to be punished for it or I'm going to lose my job so okay Lord like I'll make this sacrifice for you but no not only did did Matt very um courageously and quietly obey his conscience God blessed him infinitely more in that he ended up in the lab of a Nobel Prize winner which I'm guessing is great for a resume and for future jobs So let's approach our work um, as opportunities for for being sanctified and saved so you know being faithful to clocking in each day, clocking out each day, doing the work sometimes exciting, oftentimes boring, many times frustrating uh, entrusted to us um, let's let's view that. Lord give us the grace to view that as opportunities that um, purify us, strengthen us, make us more courageous, um, provide opportunities to live our faith and shine the light of the gospel into the world. And now that's a unique situation in which my brother brother found himself. but I share that to say that oftentimes we think, again that that um, you know I've just got to keep my head down and not share my faith, or you know not not mix work and faith because like it won't work out in the end. but uh, I'll say this because I, I don't think we actually think this, but I think it creeps into our subconscious. God is not out to get us. He's out to bless us um, not just in heaven one day like as a, a crowning reward like good job you know you were you were brave on Facebook or like you stood up to the head of that lab and now I'm gonna reward you. no he's blessing us now and, um, uh, giving us the grace now and the courage and the strength now to uh, to dive deeper into the the beautiful, abundant life. And so um, let's let's look at our jobs this week as as opportunity for for growth and change. again, sanctification and salvation for making us kind of that, you know that that iron sharpens iron or the the idea of like, you know, sanding down the the rough places on a piece of wood. Let's view our work this week as, as opportunities to be kind of like smoothed out um, or sharpened or basically made into the men and women uh, step by step whom God has created us to be. Um, we have this little book in our family. It's called Stop Asking Your Kids, How Was Your Day at School Today? Lengthy title there, where, you know, you might've experienced this for your own children. Like you pick up your kids from school or they walk through the door after getting off the bus. And it's like, how was your day? And some of my kids will say like, mom, like, stop, stop asking me that. I don't want to go through my whole day for you. And so this little book is um, just really uh, beautiful little questions. Like you know, instead of saying, like, Sophia, how was your day today? You say, Sophia, who was the kindest kid in your class today? Or Declan, did you notice any other students helping another student who felt left out? So we, we have this book. Uh, we have it in the car sometimes. Sometimes it's just lying around our house. And Sophia picked it up yesterday. And as I was cooking dinner, she said, Mom, you want to do a question? I said, Sure. She said, Okay, if you and I switch jobs, how do you think we would each do at the other's job? I was like, ooh, that's a good question. I said, "Mm, what do you think, Soph? She said, I think you would answer all of Mrs. Pierce's questions right. So Sophia's in second grade, assuming that I'll get the, hopefully, here's hoping, get the uh, addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division uh, questions, right? Um, I said, how do you think you would do at my job? She goes, mom, I don't know how you do it with all these kids. So, um, as we approach our work this week, whatever that work might be, let's uh, trust and talk to Jesus about it. Um, trust that he's 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 put us where we're meant to be. Or he's allowed us to be where we're meant to be. That our particular jobs, whether it's you know being at home with children, raising them, whether it's being you know doing someone's taxes, whether it's teaching children or adults, um, whatever the nature of our work is, let's trust that that God has placed us in our particular work, so that we can be sanctified and saved, so that we can shine the light of the gospel. Uh, to those in our specific circumstances, and um, let's pray that that work transforms us, transforms those around us, um, and helps us to enjoy the the beauty of creation. Um, to help others enjoy the beauty of creation, so the the universal destination of goods; these goods are destined for all. And then also um, trust that that you know it's good to to earn a living, to work hard, so that we can. Um, you know, own that private property so that we can we can use those goods for for those whom we love, those who have been entrusted to us. And then just as a final word, if you're thinking if you've if you've never considered tithing, um, I invite you to to bring that before the Lord this week and and ask him, you know, give me the grace to do this. How can I just start small? Maybe with one percent of my earnings, two percent of my earnings? Uh, give me the grace, Lord, to to set that aside for for those in need, and then help me know how to steward that well, so to place it in the collection basket or to bring it to a neighbor in need, etc. All right, so we'll take a brief break now, and then we'll return on the second half of the episode to read paragraphs twenty four hundred one through twenty four sixty three, which cover the seventh commandment. Thanks for sticking around. You are listening to Catholic Light. Thank you for joining me each week as we read through the Catechism of the Catholic Church and discuss some of its beautiful teachings. Hi, and welcome back. We'll now read paragraphs 2401 through 2463 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Article 7, the Seventh Commandment, You Shall Not Steal. The Seventh Commandment forbids unjustly taking or keeping the goods of one's neighbor and wronging him in any way with respect to his goods. It commands justice and charity in the care of earthly goods and the fruits of men's labor. For the sake of the common good, it requires respect for the universal destination of goods and respect for the right to private property. Christian life strives to order this world's goods to God and to fraternal charity. The Universal Destination and the Private Ownership of Goods In the beginning, God entrusted the earth and its resources to the common stewardship of mankind to take care of them, master them by labor, and enjoy their fruits. The goods of creation are destined for the whole human race. However, the earth is divided up among men to assure the security of their lives, endangered by poverty and threatened by violence. The appropriation of property is legitimate for guaranteeing the freedom and dignity of persons and for helping each of them to meet his basic needs and the needs of those in his charge. It should allow for a natural solidarity to develop between men. The right to private property, acquired or received in a just way, does not do away with the original gift of the earth to the whole of mankind. The universal destination of goods remains primordial, even if the promotion of the common good requires respect for the right to private property and its exercise. In his use of things, man should regard the external goods he legitimately owns as not merely as exclusive to himself, but common to others also, in the sense that they can benefit others as well as himself. The ownership of any property makes its holder a steward of providence with the task of making it fruitful and communicating its benefits to others, first of all his family. Goods of production, material or immaterial, such as land, factories, practical or artistic skills, oblige their possessors to employ them in ways that will benefit the greatest number. Those who hold goods for use and consumption should use them with moderation, reserving the better part for guests, for the sick and the poor. Political authority has the right and duty to regulate the legitimate exercise of the right to ownership for the sake of the common good. (coughs) Respect for persons and their goods. In economic matters, respect for human dignity requires the practice of the virtue of temperance, so as to moderate attachment to this world's goods. The practice of the virtue of justice, to preserve our neighbor's rights and render him what is his due, and the practice of solidarity, in accordance with the golden rule and in keeping with the generosity of the Lord, who, though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Respect for the goods of others. The seventh commandment forbids theft, that is, usurping another's property against the reasonable will of the owner. There is no theft if consent can be presumed or if refusal is contrary to reason and the universal destination of goods. This is the case in obvious and urgent necessity when the only way to provide for immediate essential needs, food, shelter, clothing, is to put at one's disposal and use the property of others. Even if it does not contradict the provisions of civil law, any form of unjustly taking and keeping the property of others is against the seventh commandment. Thus, deliberate retention of goods lent or of objects lost, business fraud, paying unjust wages, forcing up prices by taking advantage of the ignorance or hardship of another. The following are also morally illicit. Speculation in which one contrives to manipulate the price of goods artificially in order to gain an advantage to the detriment of others. Corruption in which one influences the judgment of those who must make decisions according to law. Appropriation and use for private purposes of the common goods of an enterprise, work poorly done, tax evasion, forgery of checks and invoices, excessive expenses and waste. Willfully damaging private or public property is contrary to the moral law and requires reparation. Promises must be kept and contracts strictly observed to the extent that the commitments made in them are morally just. A significant part of economic and social life depends on the honoring of contracts between physical or moral persons, commercial contracts of purchase or sale, rental or labor contracts. All contracts must be agreed to and executed in good faith. Contracts are subject to commutative justice, which regulates exchanges between persons and between institutions in accordance with a strict respect for their rights. Commutative justice obliges strictly, it requires safeguarding property rights. Paying debts and fulfilling obligations freely contracted. Without commutative justice, no other form of justice is possible. One distinguishes commutative justice from legal justice, which concerns what the citizen owes in fairness to the community, and from distributive justice, which regulates what the community owes its citizens in proportion to their contributions and needs. In virtue of commutative justice, reparation for injustice committed requires the restitution of stolen goods to their owner. Jesus blesses Zacchaeus for his pledge. If I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Those who, directly or indirectly, have taken possession of the goods of another are obliged to make restitution of them, or to return the equivalent in kind or in money, if the goods have disappeared, as well as the profit or advantages their owner would have legitimately obtained from them. Likewise, all who in some manner have taken part in a theft or who have knowingly benefited from it, For example, those who ordered it, assisted in it, or received the stolen goods are obliged to make restitution in proportion to their responsibility and to their share of what was stolen. Games of chance, card games, etc., or wagers are not in themselves contrary to justice. They become morally unacceptable when they deprive someone of what is necessary to provide for his needs and those of others. The passion for gambling risks becoming an enslavement. Unfair wages and cheating at games constitute grave matter, unless the damage inflicted is so slight that the one who suffers it cannot reasonably consider it significant. The seventh commandment forbids acts or enterprises that, for any reason, selfish or ideological, commercial or totalitarian, lead to the enslavement of human beings, to their being bought, sold, and exchanged like merchandise, in disregard for their personal dignity. It is a sin against the dignity of persons and their fundamental rights to reduce them by violence to their productive value or to a source of profit. St. Paul directed a Christian master to treat his Christian slave no longer as a slave but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Respect for the Integrity of Creation The Seventh Commandment enjoins respect for the integrity of creation. Animals, like plants and inanimate beings, are by nature destined for the common good of past, present, and future humanity. Use of the mineral, vegetable, and animal resources of the universe cannot be divorced from respect for moral imperatives. Man's dominion over inanimate and other living beings granted by the Creator is not absolute. It is limited by concern for the quality of life of his neighbor, including generations to come. It requires a religious respect for the integrity of creation." Animals are God's creatures. He surrounds them with his providential care. By their mere existence, they bless him and give him glory. Thus men owe them kindness. We should recall the gentleness with which saints like St. Francis of Assisi or St. Philip Neri treated animals. God entrusted animals to the stewardship of those whom he created in his own image. Hence, it is legitimate to use animals for food and clothing. They may be domesticated to help man in his work and leisure. Medical and scientific experimentation on animals is a morally acceptable practice if it remains within reasonable limits and contributes to caring for or saving human lives. It is contrary to human dignity to cause animals to suffer or die needlessly. It is likewise unworthy to spend money on them that should as a priority go to the relief of human society, excuse me, human misery. One can love animals. One should not direct to them the affection due only to persons. The Social Doctrine of the Church Christian revelation promotes deeper understanding of the laws of social living. The church receives from the gospel the full revelation of the truth about man. When she fulfills her mission of proclaiming the gospel, she bears witness to man in the name of Christ, to his dignity and his vocation to the communion of persons. She teaches him the demands of justice and peace in conformity with divine wisdom. The Church makes a moral judgment about economic and social matters when the fundamental rights of the person or the salvation of souls requires it. In the moral order, she bears a mission distinct from that of political authorities. The Church is concerned with the temporal aspects of the common good because they are ordered to the sovereign good, our ultimate end. She strives to inspire right attitudes with respect to earthly goods and in socioeconomic relationships. The social doctrine of the church developed in the 19th century when the gospel encountered modern industrial society with its new structures for the production of consumer goods, its new concept of society, the state and authority, and its new forms of labor and ownership. The development of the doctrine of the church on economic and social matters attests the permanent value of the church's teaching at the same time as it attests the true meaning of her tradition, always living and active." The Church's social teaching comprises a body of doctrine which is articulated as the Church interprets events in the course of history with the assistance of the Holy Spirit in the light of the whole of what has been revealed by Jesus Christ. This teaching can be more easily accepted by men of goodwill the more the faithful let themselves be guided by it. The Church's social teaching proposes principles for reflection. It provides criteria for judgment. It gives guidelines for action. Any system in which social relationships are determined entirely by economic factors is contrary to the nature of the human person and his acts. A theory that makes profit the exclusive norm and ultimate end of economic activity is morally unacceptable. The disordered desire for money cannot but produce perverse effects. It is one of the causes of the many conflicts which disturb the social order. A system that subordinates the basic rights of individuals and of groups to the collective organization of production is contrary to human dignity. Every practice that reduces persons to nothing more than a means of profit enslaves man leads to idolizing money and contributes to the spread of atheism. You cannot serve God and mammon. The church has rejected the totalitarian and atheistic ideologies associated in modern times with communism or socialism. She has likewise refused to accept in the practice of capitalism, individualism, and the absolute primacy of the law of the marketplace over human labor. Regulating the economy solely by centralized planning perverts the basis of social bonds. Regulating it solely by the law of the marketplace fails social justice, for there are many human needs which cannot be satisfied by the market." Reasonable regulation of the marketplace and economic initiatives, in keeping with a just hierarchy of values and a view to the common good, is to be commended. Economic activity and social justice. The development of economic activity and growth and production are meant to provide for the needs of human beings. Economic life is not meant solely to multiply goods produced and increase profit or power. It is ordered, first of all, to the service of persons, of the whole of man, and of the entire human community. Economic activity, conducted according to its own proper methods, is to be exercised within the limits of the moral order, in keeping with social justice so as to correspond to God's plan for man. Human work proceeds directly from persons created in the image of God and called to prolong the work of creation by subduing the earth, both with and for one another. Hence, work is a duty. If anyone will not work, let him not eat. Work honors the creator's gifts and the talents received from him. It can also be redemptive. By enduring the hardship of work in union with Jesus, the carpenter of Nazareth, and the one crucified on Calvary, man collaborates in a certain fashion with the Son of God in his redemptive work. He shows himself to be a disciple of Christ by carrying the cross daily in the work he is called to accomplish. Work can be a means of sanctification and a way of animating earthly realities with the Spirit of Christ. In work, the person exercises and fulfills in part the potential inscribed in his nature. The primordial value of labor stems from man himself, its author and its beneficiary. Work is for man, not man for work. Everyone should be able to draw from work the means of providing for his life and that of his family and of serving the human community. Everyone has the right of economic initiative. Everyone should make legitimate use of his talents to contribute to the abundance that will benefit all and to harvest the just fruits of his labor. He should seek to observe regulations issued by legitimate authority for the sake of the common good. Economic life brings into play different interests, even opposed to one another. This explains why the conflicts that characterize it arise. Efforts should be made to reduce these conflicts by negotiation that respect the rights and duties of each social partner. Those responsible for business enterprises, representatives of wage earners, for example trade unions, and public authorities when appropriate. The responsibility of the state. Economic activity, especially the activity of a market economy, cannot be conducted in an institutional, juridical, or political vacuum. On the contrary, it presupposes sure guarantees of individual freedom and private property, as well as a stable currency and efficient public services. Hence, the principal task of the state is to guarantee this security so that those who work and produce can enjoy the fruits of their labors and thus feel encouraged to work efficiently and honestly. Another task of the state is that of overseeing and directing the exercise of human rights in the economic sector. However, primary responsibility in this area belongs not to the state, but to individuals and to various groups and associations which make up society. Those responsible for for business enterprises are responsible to society for the economic and ecological effects of their operations. They have an obligation to consider the good of persons and not only the increase of profits. Profits are necessary, however. They make possible the investments that ensure the future of a business, and they guarantee employment. Access to employment and to professions must be open to all without unjust discrimination. Men and women, healthy and disabled, natives and immigrants. For its part, society should, according to circumstances, help citizens find work and employment. A just wage is the legitimate fruit of work. To refuse or withhold it can be a grave injustice. In determining fair pay, both the needs and the contributions of each person must be taken into account. Remuneration for work should guarantee man the opportunity to provide a dignified livelihood for himself and his family on the material, social, cultural, and spiritual level, taking into account the role and the productivity of each, the state of the business and the common good. Agreement between the parties is not sufficient to justify morally the amount to be received in wages." Recourse to a strike is morally legitimate when it cannot be avoided, or at least when it is necessary to obtain a proportionate benefit. It becomes morally unacceptable when accompanied by violence or when objectives are included that are not directly linked to working conditions or are contrary to the common good. It is unjust not to pay the social security contributions required by legitimate authority. Unemployment almost always wounds its victim's dignity and threatens the equilibrium of his life. Besides the harm done to him personally, it entails many risks for his family. Justice and Solidarity Among Nations On the international level, inequality of resources and economic capability is such that it creates a real gap between nations. On the one side, there are those nations possessing and developing the means of growth, and on the other, those accumulating debts. Various causes of religious, political, economic, and financial nature today give the social question a worldwide dimension. There must be solidarity among nations which are already politically interdependent. It is even more essential when it is a question of dismantling the perverse mechanisms that impede the development of the less advanced countries. In place of abusive, if not usurious financial systems, iniquitous commercial relations among nations, and the arms race, there must be substituted a common effort to mobilize resources toward objectives of moral, cultural, and economic development redefining the priorities and hierarchies of value. Rich nations have a grave moral responsibility toward those which are unable to ensure the means of their development by themselves or have been prevented from doing so by tragic historical events. It is a duty in solidarity and charity. It is also an obligation in justice if the prosperity of the rich nations has come from resources that have not been paid for fairly. Direct aid is an appropriate response to immediate, extraordinary needs caused by natural catastrophes, epidemics, and the like, but it does not suffice to repair the grave damage resulting from destitution or to provide a lasting solution to a country's needs. It is also necessary to reform international economic and financial institutions so that they will better promote equitable relationships with less advanced countries. The efforts of poor countries working for growth and liberation must be supported. This doctrine must be applied especially in the area of agricultural labor. Peasants, especially in the third world, form the overwhelming majority of the poor. An increased sense of God and increased self-awareness are fundamental to any full development of human society. This development multiplies material goods and puts them at the service of the person and his freedom. It reduces dire poverty and economic exploitation. It makes for growth and respect for cultural identities and openness to the transcendent. It is not the role of the pastors of the church to intervene directly in the political structuring and organization of social life. This task is part of the vocation of the lay faithful, acting on their own initiative with their fellow citizens. Social action can assume various concrete forms. It should always have the common good in view and be in conformity with the message of the gospel and the teaching of the church." It is the role of the laity to animate temporal realities with Christian commitment by which they show that they are witnesses and agents of peace and justice. Love for the poor. God blesses those who come to the aid of the poor and rebukes those who turn away from them. Give to him who begs from you. Do not refuse him who would borrow from you. You received without pay, give without pay. It is by what they have chosen It is by what they have done for the poor that Jesus Christ will recognize his chosen ones. When the poor have the good news preached to them, it is the sign of Christ's presence. The church's love for the poor is a part of her constant tradition. This love is inspired by the gospel of the Beatitudes and the poverty of Jesus and of his concern for the poor. Love for the poor is even one of the motives for the duty of working so as to be able to give to those in need. It extends not only to material poverty, but also to the many forms of cultural and religious poverty. Love for the poor is incompatible with the moderate love of riches or their selfish use. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted, and their rust will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure for the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have killed the righteous man. He does not resist you. That comes from the book of James, chapter five. St. John Chrysostom vigorously recalls this. Not to enable the poor to share in our goods is to steal from them and deprive them of life. The goods we possess are not ours, but theirs. The demands of justice must be satisfied first of all. That which is already due in injustice is not to be offered as a gift of charity. When we attend to the needs of those in want, we give them what is theirs, not ours. More than performing works of mercy, we are paying a debt of justice. That comes from St. Gregory the Great. The works of mercy are charitable actions by which we come to the aid of our neighbor in his spiritual and bodily necessities. Instructing, advising, consoling, comforting are spiritual works of mercy, as are forgiving and bearing wrongs patiently. The corporal works of mercy consist especially in feeding the hungry, sheltering the homeless, clothing the naked, visiting the sick and imprisoned, and burying the dead. Among all these, giving alms to the poor is one of the chief witnesses to fraternal charity. It is also a work of justice pleasing to God. He who has two coats, let him share with him who has none, and he who has food must do likewise. But give for alms those things which are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. If a brother or sister is ill-clad and in lack of daily food and one of you says to them go in peace be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body what does it profit that comes from again James and references the God, uh, excuse me the first letter of John In its various forms, material deprivation, unjust oppression, physical and psychological illness, and death, human misery is the obvious sign of the inherited condition of the frailty and need for salvation in which man finds himself as a consequence of original sin. This misery elicited the compassion of Christ the Savior, who willingly took it upon himself and identified himself with the least of his brethren. Hence, those who are oppressed by poverty "'oppressed by poverty, are the object of a preferential love "'on the part of the Church, which since her origin "'and in spite of the failings of many of her members, "'has not ceased to work for their relief, defense, and liberation "'through numerous works of charity, "'which remain indispensable always and everywhere. "'Beginning with the Old Testament, all kinds of juridical measures, "'the jubilee year of forgiveness of debts, "'prohibition of loans at interest and the keeping of collateral, "'the obligation to tithe,' The daily payment of the day laborer, the right to glean vines and fields, answer the exhortation of Deuteronomy. For the poor will never cease out of the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in the land. Jesus makes these words his own. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. In so doing, he does not soften the vehemence of former oracles against buying the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals but invites us to recognize his own presence in the poor who are his brethren. When her mother reproached her for caring for the poor and the sick at home, St. Rose of Lima said to her, When we serve the poor and the sick, we serve Jesus. We must not fail to help our neighbors, because in them we serve Jesus. In brief, you shall not steal. Neither thieves, nor the greedy, nor robbers will inherit the kingdom of God. The seventh commandment enjoins the practice of justice and charity in the administration of earthly goods and the fruits of men's labor. The goods of creation are destined for the entire human race. The right to private property does not abolish the universal destination of goods. The seventh commandment forbids theft. Theft is the usurpation of another's goods against the reasonable will of the owner. Every manner of taking and using another's property unjustly is contrary to the seventh commandment. The injustice committed requires reparation. Commutative justice requires the restitution of stolen goods. The moral law forbids acts which, for commercial or totalitarian purposes, lead to the enslavement of human beings or to their being bought, sold, or exchanged like merchandise. The dominion granted by the creator over the mineral, vegetable, and animal resources of the universe cannot be separated from respect for moral obligations, including those toward generations to come. Animals are entrusted to man's stewardship, he must show them kindness. They may be used to serve the just satisfaction of man's needs. The church makes a judgment about economic and social matters when the fundamental rights of the person or the salvation of souls requires it. She is concerned with the temporal common good of men because they are ordered to the sovereign good, their ultimate end. Man is himself the author, center, and goal of all economic and social life. The decisive point of the social question is that goods created by God for everyone should in fact reach everyone in accordance with justice and with the help of charity. The primordial value of labor stems from man himself, its author and beneficiary. By means of his labor, man participates in the work of creation. Work united to Christ can be redemptive. True development concerns the whole man. It is concerned with increasing each man's ability to respond to his vocation and hence to God's call. Giving alms to the poor is a witness to fraternal charity. It is also a work of justice pleasing to God. How can we not recognize Lazarus, the hungry beggar in the parable, in the multitude of human beings without bread, a roof, or a place to stay? How can we fail to hear Jesus? As you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me. This brings us to the end of our reading selection, the end of our episode. Thanks for joining me. Between this week and next week's episode, please pray for me. I'll be praying for you. And in the meantime, God bless you. Thanks for joining me this week on Catholic Light. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your family and your friends. And connect with me through Facebook and Instagram. I'll see you next week. And in the meantime, God bless you.